Hey, Val Cafe listeners, this is Brian. Today's episode features a discussion recorded at the Canadian Evaluation Society's recent conference in Calgary. Carolyn and I hosted a thematic breakfast roundtable on the final day of the conference, where we were joined by several other evaluators who were attending the conference. Since we were in a large room, the audio quality was not not the greatest, but we hope you enjoyed the episode anyway. On with the show. Welcome to the Eval Cafe. 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 This podcast is an informal chat on evaluation topics, the kind you might overhear at your favorite coffee shop if your favorite coffee shop were frequented by evaluators. This podcast is for everyone, expert or novice, long-time practitioner, or just starting in the field. Even if you don't identify as an evaluator, as long as you have an interest in evaluation, this podcast is for you. So hi everyone, and welcome to Eval Cafe. My name is Brian Hostler. I'm the founder of Strong Roots Consulting, based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan which is uh, Treaty 6 territory and homeland of the Métis. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, and this time by a whole bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. Hi, everyone. I'm Carolyn Cameron. I'm an independent evaluation consultant working out of Vancouver, B.C., uh, which is also on the unceded uh, territory of the Coast Salish people. And uh, we've got a few more people joining us today who are also going to introduce themselves. Hi. I'm Beth Snow. I'm an evaluator with the Center for Health Evaluation and Outcome Sciences, also known as CHAOS, <laughs> also in Vancouver, BC. And I'm Sandra Selleck. I'm from Kelowna, BC. I'm an independent consultant uh, operating as Evaluation Link. And Kelowna is on the unceded territory of the Selex people. Yeah, my name is Michelle Naimi, and I am a Master of Evalu- Evaluation student at the University of Melbourne. Um, and I also work part-time doing some evaluation work. I'm Sarah Farina, Principal at Broadleaf Consulting, and uh, the incoming CES President. Okay, thank you everyone. That was a pretty great take, and I want to say, you may have noticed there's a little bit of uh, interesting background noise. That's because we're coming to you from the Calgary 2018 Canadian Evaluation Society Conference. We're in the grand... Foyer ballroom, I don't know what the name of this room is, uh, where we're having breakfast on the last day of the conference. We're all a little bit tired, I think, probably mm-hmm. after two full days of conferencing, or two plus for some of us. Uh, and I want to say that we are at currently on the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, and the city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. So this is our co-created podcast episode. Um, because the theme of this conference is co-creation. And we're here with a group of conference attendees, um, and we're just going to talk about what we've experienced and learned from this conference. Does anyone want to kick us off with a highlight of the conference from their experience? Seeing a live podcast recording? (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) We did not pay her to say that. (laughs) One of the highlights for me yesterday was seeing the presentation of awards for service to evaluation given to members of the association. Beginning with service to the CES, 
to Emmanuel Godbeau Gautier for her work on the Electronic News Bulletin, for their service to Evaluation in Canada, Brigitte Larson, Larry Bremner, and Keiko Kujishikatani. And two of our members were also admitted to the Fellowship of the Canadian Evaluation Society, Francois Dumain and Gail Valence Barrington. All of them have remarkable stories as evaluators, and we can all learn from the example that they have set. I found that whole awards luncheon so moving. It was really lovely to see people paying tribute to their friends and peers. That was really a really lovely moment. Yeah. Any other highlights from the conference so far? I appreciated the mayor's panel and the moment where someone from the audience asked what um, brought them to, you know, what their understanding of evaluation was and they said that the first time they'd heard about it was when they received the letter inviting them to the conference. And so I think that was an interesting comment on how much outreach we actually might want to think about doing as a society. And then um, one of my, my favorite responses was when Kylie Hutchinson asked what um, evaluators can do to provide reports that support decision makers. And they all said that they'd like reports to be much shorter, they'd like them to be summarized. Um, and if, if I may quote, they said not to add text that makes the report look fuller. So, <laughs> we never do that as evaluators, never. Right, note so to self, were, no more fluffing. <laughs> they were very in, interesting and sincere comments, and, and so I thought we had a lot to learn from that as well. Mm -hmm. I, I also really liked the suggestion that was made during that panel that we should probably have a panel of evaluators at the Canadian Municipalities Conference where we can talk to mayors and councillors about what it is we do and what value could be added to their work by our work. I think that's so true. I think we often work with federal and provincial government, but there are so many municipalities out there and what great partners to connect with to do really amazing, local, powerful work. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah, and I appreciate your the whole comment about the... Uh, about like length of reports and all that, and I think we often write up longer reports in part because we think the client wants them or that they expects that of us. But they're saying like, no, keep it short and simple. It's like, okay, uh, <laughs> we have to change our way of doing it a little bit. Uh, my personal highlight was uh, watching the student case competition and having our amazing team from UBC and also a little bit of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the um, team Rethink, who represented, it was uh, SFU, UBC, UVic, yeah. and University of Melbourne. We had our first multi-institution case competition team. They came together at a, a Students and Emerging Evaluators Network coffee meetup in BC in November and just said, hey, we're all students. We, we're not at the same institution, but we can be on a team together. And I'm talking about this a lot, but actually we have Michelle who was on the team right <laughs> sitting in front of me. Michelle, do you want to talk about... Sure. No, it was a fantastic experience. I think Clint, one of my teammates, mentioned that this was pretty much like taking an entire evaluation course. The amount that we've learned over the last couple of months, um, just studying different methods and strategies and approaches to evaluation and then taking them and actually applying them to cases, which is a really critical part. I think we learn a lot in school about these methods, but that actual application when you're dealing with a real-world client was really, really valuable. Um, and I really think that having us from all different institutions, from different departments and programs, was really a strength because we all had 
different areas of expertise and different sort of knowledge bases and we were able to really work well together and build on those strengths and say, okay, you're really good at this, you do this, you're good at this, do this. Um, and so I think it really worked in our favor. And so exciting. And so exciting that this team not only won, but is going to go on to represent us internationally. Yeah. Yeah. It was the first international student case competition with, uh, I think, participants um, from... The Czech Republic and England and maybe Australia. Where is that happening? It's going to be virtual. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a travel. What's the point? I know, I know. Yes, I guess it would just be too hard and quite pricey to go in. So it's going to be virtual. Still pretty exciting. It's very cool. Yeah. Who, who runs that competition? Um, you know, who's organizing? It's like the first time I think they're trying it out, and so they'll kind of yeah. use this as guinea pigs and see how it goes. <laughs> Awesome. And then evaluate it? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah, but interestingly, the Czech team has volunteered to do it in English. Um, and so we, of course, said they're going to have a little bit more time in order to prepare because that would be really challenging. Yeah, submit a report in another language, but I think it's pretty cool. Awesome. Very Great. Any more highlights? I love the Ignite session. Uh, it's always one of my favorites. It's so fast-paced. It's sort of exciting. The, the presentations are of high quality, and I just learn so much. And I, I really love the the pace and, and the um, opportunity to interact. I liked. Uh, there was a session on the CES ethics and uh, renewal of the CES ethics, which I learned our ethical guidelines or policy or whatever it's called is like 20 years old and hasn't been looked at in 20 years and. Um, we looked at it and went, wow, there's some work to do here. Yeah, I was in that session. It was a great session. Lots of discussion. Um, it's not often you get... I think we eventually had like 15 people in that room all very enthusiastically talking about ethics. I think uh, the, the, the task force running that um, review has a sense now of some of the work in front of them. And I, I wish them all the best. <laughs> but it's really important work. I'm glad that we're yeah. undertaking it. I also got to sit in on uh, the um, the CE designation competency update session, which was really neat. I liked what they were doing with the competencies. They really tried to simplify. They, I think, they, they gave us some numbers. Someone crunched the numbers. It's a uh, 41% fewer words. <laughs> they really trimmed down. A lot of those descriptions were very, very long, and they thought, no, we can make this. You know, we more general and more applicable and less so okay it should look specifically like this um, and 21% fewer competencies they've added some some really important ones including they've added one that will reflect um, our support of, of the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and, and a call specifically to look at how we can address relationships between indigenous and non-indigenous people as evaluators which I think is really important but then they also took a bunch of competencies that were sort of redundant and overlapping and they combine them into ones and move them in different sections so a, a huge amount of work has been put into that and I'm excited to I think they've asked for feedback by June 30th and I think they want to roll them out by the fall and have the whole online system updated by by January is the timeline that I heard although yeah. I don't hold them to <laughs> but uh, I'm really excited with the with what's happening there yeah right so how about people you? who oh, sorry. No, 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 no. so people who are looking to apply for the credentialed evaluator designation uh, who have their work in progress right now wouldn't be affected by the change but those who are 
applying starting in the new year in uh, 2019 would need to apply uh, within the framework of the new competencies. That's my understanding, yeah. yeah. That's actually correct. Um, in BC, we're working on a CE application support initiative to sort of help evaluators who are maybe think it's a little bit daunting to start applying or who have applied and just kind of got stuck. Um, and so we confirmed that with Natalie that if you've already started your application, then you will go under the old system. So. Yeah, there was even a suggestion made in that session that Carolyn mentioned I was there as well that, you know, you might want to wait until January to start because then you have to deal with 21% fewer <laughs> confidence. <laughs> 44% fewer words, not supported. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, we've had someone new join the table yes, because sorry, this is like. a flexible <laughs> session and people can, can come in and come and go. Do you want to introduce yourself for our podcast listeners? All right, Just, yes. Um, I'm Anne Bosio and I come from Adelaide in South Australia. Um, and I'm here because I'm particularly interested in um, with the First Nations, how we, how we actually engage and do work with First Nations. So, and our First Nations, certainly in remote areas, is quite different to yours in that our geography is quite spread and therefore you don't actually have dense populations. Uh, well, no. It's very rare that someone refers to Canada as having dense populations. <laughs> I think Australia is allowed to do that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the only anyway, the only other place you can make that comment uh, would be Antarctica. I think yeah. in Antarctica you can talk about everywhere else having yeah, dense populations. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, so I'm doing some work. Um, I, I have a number of evaluations um, with, within the Department for Child Protection um, that uh, concern um, our First Nations people. Um, and I'm doing some stuff in the very remote area of um, uh, communities north in the north of the state. And they're, they're, um, they move across about four, five different states, but certainly Western Australia and Northern Territory. Yeah. So um, I'm, they're very interested. And, and also they're different in that... Well, Australia is different in that we don't have a treaty mm. with our First Nations people, and we don't haven't even recognised them in the constitution. So, um, but that the High Court overturned that. So, uh, but but they were treated as terra. That Australia was treated as terra nullius, which meant that um, they yeah. Mm -hmm. So yes, yeah, so we've got a lot of reconciliation to do. Mm -hmm. Do you have any highlights from the conference so far? I, I think the, the, the plenary on the first day was fabulous, um, and also um, Lee Bill. Um, yes, yesterday, yesterday. Mm -hmm. fabulous. You know, because um, our First Nations <clears throat> in those remote areas really they have English as maybe their fourth or fifth language, so we've, it's quite different for us. So, and and they do stuff in in pictures and, and things, and, mm -hmm. and it's an oral tradition. So yeah, right. so it's awesome. Yeah, and Lee Bill, she was from. Uh, Alberta First Nation Information Governance Center, I believe, but uh, yeah, some great examples there of indigenous uh, inspired or indigenous created logic models. And I think I tweeted that like you can barely see like any boxes or arrows, so very different from Western style logic models, but very, uh, very um, visual, very use of metaphors and such, and really easy to follow even up on the big screen. Yeah. No, no, it was great. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need to do more for that because people's learning styles are quite different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and some people really aren't text-based. They're they're more 
visual and, and, mm-hmm. and things. So, or oral. That was something else that came up in that uh, CE designation competency discussion is, um, I know at least in my discussion group, we noted some of the competencies were sort of talking a little bit more about um, written documentation and written reports. And, and I know within that group we had a lot of conversation about, well, what about all those other alternative ways and making sure that we're not always, it doesn't always have to be written. It can be, I've seen evaluation results presented in a play. <laughs> it was tremendous. Um, so I think having that flexibility and being able to communicate in so many different modes yeah. is really important. So we think use things like Vengage, um, and also yeah. when we do briefings, um, we, we, we're required to do them as succinctly as possible. So, you know, um, not so much one page, because can't you put the headings on. <laughs> yeah. There's, not, there's not much room left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, as we heard from our mayors, you know, less words. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> So our theme was um, co-creation, and I wondered what that theme meant to the people at the table, if you had any thoughts about co-creation now here on day three of our conference. <laughs> well, I will say that I've found it to be really challenging, and it's really provoked a lot of reflection, because I think it's a nice idea, and I think that when you think about how to do it, it's actually got a lot of challenges. So I think it asks us to actually do things quite differently, and I, I think that we, in a way, need to think about what the tools would look like to get us to that point. So I really appreciated all of the presentations that were coming from different perspectives and considering some of the different things that will be important parts of co-creation. Um, in South Australia, we've had a, a South Australian strategic plan, or it's called South Australia's strategic plan. And um, part of that process has been to engage the community. And, so, and I suppose we have a lot of um, uh, advocacy groups um, and um, non-government organisations, but they have peak bodies. Um, the union movement has a peak body. Um, and so so there are some structures you can connect, connect into, you know, and if you take unions, they have a much broader perspective of an industry than sort of necessarily businesses um, who, who actually have their own single singular interest. Um, so you can actually pick up, you know, a lot of what are some of the issues in the workplace, in organisations, uh, by actually looking at, at who, who map your stakeholders and things, um, and um, to actually then start some conversations and things. Um, we also have a thing called Together SA, um, and that's uh, and we've also had some tools around um, how you do that engagement. So I guess if you're interested, I'll send you some um, links, um, and you can have a little bit of a look at uh, how we've done it, because there's actually a program where you can actually uh, be work through um, uh, that, that whole engagement process. That's neat, that would be great. We can put those up in our show notes uh, for everyone. Um, seeing as this is a co-created uh, podcast and we're all experienced question askers, we, does anyone have questions for the table? Take over the, the reins of the podcast for us. Engage in some true co-creation. <laughs> So that you asking that question just made me think of um, the, I think it was the mayor of Yellowknife bringing up like the International Association of Public Participation spectrum of engagement, mm-hmm. um, which kind of I took a little while. It's early morning and the coffee hasn't set in. Uh, Sarah was mentioning the challenges of trying to really do it as opposed to just saying we do it, which you know often happens with things. Um, that um, there's many kind of levels of of participation or co-creation so moving from us as like question answerers to now us as question askers and how can we do something like that in our 
in our evaluations, where it's not just the evaluator asking the questions, but maybe some of our uh, participants, what questions do they want answered in an evaluation? Yeah, that reminds me of uh, uh, Nan Pahana from uh, from New Zealand, uh, Maori. I think at last year's conference in Vancouver, she kind of was presenting this framework of like evaluation to people, evaluation for people, evaluation with, and then evaluation by. Uh, simply from her perspective as as Maori, but uh, you know, similarly, it's you know, it's a spectrum. It's not like we're either co-creating or we're not. There can be different levels of co-creation or different ways that people are engaged. Something that uh, struck me after thinking about co-creation in so many different ways during this conference uh, struck me when I was reading an article last night and I had pulled this article as part of the uh, environmental scan for the CES working group on ethics review and uh, in this particular article was written by Mark Jones and Carla Miller it was published in the Journal of Business Ethics in 2010 and what struck me was to read the introduction which uh, posited that it appears that appears clear that openness, cooperation and co-creation is a basic requisite for dealing with the global challenges facing not just leaders but humanity as a whole and I was just struck that that was in the opening lines of that article that uh, was published in 2010 here we are eight years later with the the co-creation as the theme of the conference, but with similar intentions. Thank you for sharing that. I guess another thought that comes to mind with co-creation is is this uh, the society as a whole, the CES. Um, it is really active. Like it, it's you know the members who create this society, both in the sort of like, you know, the board and the councils, but also the members. Because one of the things I really love about the conference is meeting with other evaluators, you know, sharing shared frustrations or learning from what other people do when you go to the sessions. And it's kind of interesting how the society itself is really, it's co-created. I think so. I mean, especially because um, I feel like even evaluation as a whole profession is co-created. No one has said, okay, this is what evaluation is and must be. It, it's a field that's really evolving and changing. Even I'm hearing people talk about, like, even in the last five years, the, the, the direction of the field has shifted and changed. And I wonder if that's... Uh, I was talking with some evaluators about how a lot of people are accidentally falling into the profession. You know, <laughs> set out to be like, when I grow up, I'm going to be an evaluator. Um, there's someone from my team who, this is his first evaluation conference, and he's always saying like, oh, I'm just six months into being an evaluator. I'm, I'm really an anthropologist. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I was there too. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so yeah, like the many different disciplines that kind of co-create evaluation and shape it. Yeah, we, all, we all bring so much from our, our different backgrounds, our personal backgrounds, our cultural and geographic backgrounds, our professional and training backgrounds. Um, I think it's wonderful. I love the diversity of the field. It can make it really challenging sometimes when we're having conversations across each other and trying to uh, figure out, okay, well this is what happens in my context, how would that apply in your context, does that make any sense, how, you know, um, but it, it brings so much life to the profession. I really enjoy it. I have a question. Um, I was looking at the theme of the conference and the way that they described it, and they described a mutually agreed outcomes, shared goals, and I was thinking about that, and actually that seems 
hard. <laughs> and so I'm curious to know what people think here and what you've thought about through the conference and, and in your own work, um, how you think that fits. Because often in evaluation, we sort of ask the um, people who are part of the program or whatever it is that's being evaluated to identify those things. But as you co-create that, how does it happen? When does it happen? What, what's important about it? To, to me, I'm thinking again of the many levels of co-creation. So the project I'm working on now, it's a, across three, three different organizations. And one of the first things I did when I started was get them together to co-create their goals for the program because they hadn't actually done that. They're like, we want you to tell us if you know we've met our goals and what are your goals? And they hadn't actually sat down and written them together. But we certainly didn't go to the front lines and say, what do you think the goals for this are? And go to the user end users and say, what do you think the goals are? So... You know, there's many ways we could have co-created that deeper, although I'd probably still be trying to then create the goals four years later. That would be a heck of a nested logic model. You'd need to do that one in three dimensions, like Star Trek chess. Um, it, I, one of the things that I've been thinking about is how we can design and develop interventions and services and um, even once even when we have really clearly established and articulated goals my experience has been that the people who actually come and use these services are they always have their own agenda and reason for doing so and and their experience and their vision of what the the programmer service is about can be so different from what anyone else expected it to be and I think it's so valuable to sit down and talk with people not to sit down and say did you get this outcome this outcome this outcome this outcome but just sit down and talk with them in a really open way about what their experience is and what they enjoy and what they want and need even beyond the scope of the program itself to really understand how that program fits into their lives. Mm. I was at a session yesterday that was um it was a presentation of the city of Edmonton's uh, mental health community mental health action plan, and they did it as as a series of maps, uh, including journey maps of users. Um, I can put the link to the to the to it in the show notes. But uh, yeah, basically, and they're showing different examples. For example, um, they worked with a group of uh, survivors of intimate partner violence, and they created a map, and it was basically like that. Uh, um, snakes and ladders game so saying okay here's the different steps that people go through and sometimes you hit a snake and you end up right back where you started and sometimes hit a ladder and that's a support so um, that was a really neat way of, of showing yeah kind of engaging with users and, and, and clients and such and then figuring out how to represent that in a non 30 page report <laughs> format so. Something else I've learned about co-creation is the importance of getting comfortable with discomfort. <laughs> and sometimes even sitting in silence because you're creating a space where other people may want to step in. Um, and thinking of ways, like if you want to co-create with someone, uh, thinking about how you're actually going to go through that process. How are we going to set it up so that this is a mutually comfortable interaction or a mutually accessible interaction? And and embracing the fact that there's going to be some a certain amount of messiness and disjointedness as people figure out how to work together. <clears throat> that and I think time. Uh, I was in a session yesterday. It was one that I was presenting at as well, and it was a storytelling session on youth-related programs. But I think it kind of became a not quite a failure party, but. Uh, 
uh, us all admitting about how things didn't work out as anticipated across three different uh, presentations. And I think that was one of the themes, yes, it, it takes time, even going back to that question about how do you co-create outcomes, um, you can't do it in a, in a couple of months, and even a year is a bit, can be a bit dicey if it's a longer term project. It's, you just, uh, yeah, you need to create that space and have it, and if you try to force it top down, as one of the presenters pointed put out, um, uh, it, it just it explodes. <laughs> it explodes in your face. So, yeah. yeah. One of the sessions I was in, we got in a discussion about um, we were talking about stakeholder engagement and co-creation kind of things. And someone said, "Well, how do you do this? Like, all all of you presenters are on these really long-term projects. How do you do that level of engagement when you have like?" three months and the answer was kind of like you don't <laughs> you just can't I think it's that um, thing about um, it's about trying to have a vision around how you chunk some of these things down so if you've actually got the luxury of a longer term um, outcomes that you want to achieve um, and if you're actually invited in to um, uh, the initiative in its planning phase um, and things, then um, you can actually be a very useful partner for critiquing how the, the project or the program is put together. Um, and I guess with the, the land space service that we've been sort of working on a, a service model, we've had people on the lands, but, um, but we've now got a bigger number of people, so it's really important that they have clarity around the role that they have. Um, and certainly, um, we had a Royal Commission um, which reported in 2016 on um, uh, children in uh, child safety and, and our institutional arrangements around it. So um, it's, uh, yeah, so what we've, we've got to do is build an evidence base, but we've actually also got to get better outcomes for um, the families and, and children in particular. Um, and then not put them into institutional care, but to actually really, I mean, kinship care is our preferred option if they have to be taken away. Um, so, so it is, and we get invited, well, we've actually been doing a number of things like adolescent reunification. There was a lot of planning up front before we actually ran the program. And we looked at a whole pile of international evidence about how, you know, what's been effective in terms of adolescent reunification. We've actually got some local therapeutic model that we're actually trialling. Um, and we have a university that's actually in amongst, that is doing the evaluation of the therapeutic component. I'm doing the evaluation of the implementation of it. Um, so, of, of, of that, that trial. Um, and likewise, we've got a transition to adult life um, initiative that is, you know, and so it's it, in some ways they're, they're um, trialling a new approach, which then hopefully will become systemic. So, um, so I guess the the thing there is you actually have that that luxury of being able to be part a part of a partner in that that whole planning um, and project management phase. And sometimes, you know, it's across there's, there's boundaries across because because the people who are actually thinking about and implementing something maybe have been more operational than necessarily thinking strategically or in a policy sense. So, um, yeah, so it's, so, you know, sort of the, 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 the person who um, is the team lead in, in our area um, really doesn't want us to necessarily help or get, get involved in that, that implementation phase, but I think it's very important because you can actually really ask some questions that people haven't thought about and, and you can also chunk it, you can, you can chunk it down or phase a particular initiative. So, you know, you might say, okay, 
well, at the end of three years, we want to achieve this. Um, what do we need to do to get to that point? Um, you know, can we break down how we actually sort of implement and things, um, and who should be, in, you know, who should be involved in those sorts of things? Have, have you? Uh, are you aware of IAP two? Yes. yes, that came right, up in okay. the plenary yesterday, I think. Yeah. One of the mayor of Yellowknife, I think, mentioned it. All oh, right, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because that's actually a good model about thinking about how your stakeholder engagement, mm-hmm. you know, where are people at in the spectrum, but also what does the organisation want to do in terms of that engagement process and how, um, how open or uh, desirous is the audience to be involved. So is it just sending information out or is it actually authentic engagement where you actually really are collaborating so that, that spectrum is um, is one that you know it's 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 a useful tool to think a bit about you know what the project owner um, is actually wanting out there and their spe- expectations and 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 what's what are the stakeholders who that might be really engaged what's their expectation you know, yeah. so it's that it's that courage thing too <laughs> I've also I've also appreciated how much storytelling there has been, and I think it's actually very difficult to do, and I I really admire people who can do it, and I think that, you know, Larry Bremner, even when he was receiving his award and wanting to tell stories that actually relate to his experience and to what's brought him to this point, and the mayor of Yellowknife telling the romantic story of how his parents met, (laughs) and uh, I think that those are the things that bring things to life and actually situate the evaluator, and I know that the mayor wasn't necessarily speaking as an evaluator, but I think it's actually quite interesting Mm -hmm. that storytelling is becoming uh, a part of of what we do. So we're at about five minutes to eight right now, so we have just enough time for a bit of a wrap-up. Does anyone have a suggestion of what our final wrap-up question could be? Well, I attended a very interesting session yesterday on developmental uh, evaluation. And one of the presentations was based on the topic of the burning question and how that can be an excellent opening question when working with groups of people on uh, collaborative evaluation to find out what is the burning question. I put that forward. There might be some burning questions around this table as we get ready to leave the conference. I think that's a great, and that's a great technique. Um, I've I've been using that in my own developmental evaluation a little bit after reading about it on the AEA 365 blog. So I thought it was really neat that they were presenting on it here, and I thank you for for raising that. So yeah, maybe we can go around and and share our our burning questions. Does anyone have one they want to start with? You don't have to answer it. We're just gonna we're gonna ask the questions and put it out there. <laughs> You're giving us the space to be quiet <laughs> and think about burning questions. I can jump in and start with my burning question. Um, for me, my burning question is about the evaluation profession as a whole, and I think it's where do we go from here. That's the question that I'm sitting with through this whole conference and, and in general. Where are we going from here, and then what is our next step as a, as a profession and as evaluators? So that's. I think my burning question is how best to take the myriad of ideas, techniques, suggestions, examples that I have learned at this conference 
and put them into action. We talk a lot about utilization of evaluation results and recommendations, but how do we utilize the ideas that we've acquired, the conversations that we've had, the models that we've seen, and actually put them into our practice? Actually, my burning question, this is a bit of a plug for our BC conference we're having in November, plug is away. what am I going to submit <laughs> for the call for proposals that are about to come out? Because I'm so excited about working with and meeting other evaluators that I'm excited for the next evaluation conference I get to go to. From the Mayor's panel yesterday, um, and, and it's the same in Australia, and that is the, the visibility of the society. Um, and I guess the uh, it's evaluation is gaining traction in a whole range of different areas, and building evidence base, research to practice, um, a whole part of things. So, so I think it's really about how does how does CS how does AES actually be, be more strategic in terms of um, raising its profile um, in, um, in in areas that count. Well, not so much count, everything, everything counts, but you know, in terms of prioritising, but being strategic about about that engagement process and that promotion process. And I think the other side of it, in Australia, we don't really have um, many universities that actually have, uh, well really I think Melbourne is the one that has evaluation as a discipline um, uh, and a qualification, So, but, but evaluation is wrapped up in a whole part of other um, qualifications, so, um, so it, it doesn't get visibility that well either. I'm going to pick up the thread that uh, Leslie Goodyear started yesterday. I think it was at the mayor's panel. She was the uh, she's the uh, current uh, president of the American Evaluation Association, and just asked, "How do we as evaluators continue to speak truth to power?" And whether that's as individuals, whether that's as uh, as an association, as as, as groups of evaluators. Uh, I really like uh, Francois Devane's. Uh, uh, well, the introduction for him uh, and the story of him uh, standing up against the uh, um, decision several years ago to scrap the long-form census, and that, and that you believe that the association or the society should be involved in speaking out against that, and that's a form of speaking truth to power as well about the negative impact for evaluation for use of science and policy. So, yes, how do we? Uh, I mean, that could also be just individually too, when we're reporting findings or trying to balance the needs of stakeholders and organizations and clients and funders um, in our reporting, how do we continue to speak truth, but then also how do we do that in a way that is, is useful and that challenges power in, in different ways. I think that brings us to the end of our episode, and I want to thank Beth and Sandra and Michelle and Anna and Sarah and Brian, and I'm going to thank myself too, Carolyn, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is us coming to you from Calgary. CES 2018 co-creation. What an amazing conference. Uh, thank you to everyone and uh, can't wait to get this up on the internet. That's it for this episode of Eval Cafe. Thank you to all our listeners. Please check out the rest of our episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play, or by going through our website, evalcafe.wordpress.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at evalcafe. And if you want to drop us a line, you can find us at evalcafe.podcast at gmail.com. Musical credits go to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Poppers and Prosecco, our intro theme, and Dispersion Relation, our outro, as well as to Tim at TabletopAudio.com for the lively cafe ambiance in our intro.
All right, well, you're, you're top of the list, Brian, so... All right, do I still do the hi, and every, hi, hi everyone, and welcome bit, or no? I think so, yeah. Sure. All right, And well, we can do this twice if people want a chance to get a practice round in as well. Sure. Right now, you can do it four times. <laughs> yeah, and we just have to look up every time. Wait, what is the intro again? I can't remember it. Where do we have it? Oh, yeah. two things to keep in mind, I say as I interrupt Brian, is to be careful with crosstalk and interrupting people. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect modeling of that. <laughs>